This week's reading will be from Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 through 31. Then he released Barnabas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into Pretonium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bound the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. It's good to see each of you this morning. We appreciate your presence, especially if you're visiting with us. We're glad that that you are here. I would like to uh, add to uh, some of the comments that Brother Ron said. Uh, we had a wonderful time at the picnic, and uh, we're looking forward to doing some more of those things. And I always want to make sure that the congregation understands we organize these things so our young people can have something to, uh, uh, to do so they can get together, enjoy each other's company, but everyone is invited. We always want the whole congregation to come be with us if you have an opportunity to do that. And uh, I discovered some interesting things yesterday. We were playing a little baseball, throwing the ball around a little bit. And Zach really should have been a major league pitcher. But no one can throw the ball farther than Alicia. She has the best arm. But we had a wonderful time and uh, we appreciate everyone that was a part of that. After our Lord was sentenced to death, Pilate had him scourged. Now we understand that to be a terrible torture that was uh, placed upon those people who had been condemned in some way or the other. We understand it to be something that is absolutely inhumane. It's difficult for us to really put our minds around it to, to know exactly what it is because we do not normally use that term, scourging. But in essence, scourging was beating a man to death with a whip. Often the, the victim would uh, not last through the scourging. Strips of uh, flesh would hang down from, from his back. Often you could even see the internal organs. Bones could be broken, eyes be put out, because on the end of these leather straps they would have pieces of metal or rock or bone or something sharp. And it was just like knives. But Jesus was turned over after Barabbas was released and ordered to be scourged. He was scourged. He was taken from that. And then he was handed over to the Roman soldiers. Now we're told by Matthew that Jesus was placed in the custody of these Roman soldiers. They were taken to the Praetorian. And the Praetorian was a a uh, temporary place for Pilate, for his, uh, we might say, his office, where he would uh, uh, entertain the people coming to see him, and that's where he was when he was in Jerusalem. Normally, Pilate was in Caesarea. But he was handed over to these soldiers, and the final 
details of the crucifixion were being put into place. And so he was under guard to these soldiers who were normally the bodyguard for Pilate. Now, there is little doubt that these men abused our Lord even beyond what we have recorded for us. They were, just in our reading that Brother Matthew read for us, they were cruel, they had evil intentions, and they were inhumane. I want us to understand a little bit about these soldiers. These soldiers were likely drafted into the Roman army. They were fulfilling a period of time that was required of them, and many of them did so begrudgingly. As you look to the latter part of the Roman Empire's history, we understand that as it grew and it got bigger and it encompassed many more nations, that the Romans, who or those who became Romans, they did not have that sense of loyalty to the kingdom that the original Roman Empire had. And so their loyalty would often lie somewhere else. Now they had to be drafted, they had to serve a certain period of time in the Roman military, but they often did that not because that's what they wanted to do. As the account unfolds, we do learn of the mistreatment of Christ in various ways by these soldiers. But I want us to understand also there was a difference between these soldiers and between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. These soldiers, though this is not an excuse for their behavior, they were not aware of exactly who Jesus was. Pilate understood who Jesus was. The chief rulers of the Jewish nation understood what Jesus was and who He was. Now this again isn't an excuse, but it does give us a little insight into what's going on at this particular time in history. Now these soldiers were under the command of a centurion. A centurion ruled over or was in charge of a group of men. He was the highest ranking non-commissioned officer in the Roman military, in their army. He, can, uh, he commanded again a centuria, which gains its name from the fact that sometimes there were 100 men in this centuria. The centuria was uh, much like a, uh, a platoon, we might say. And it was made up of squads by a different name. But each one of these squads had at least eight men. And so normally they would have just 80 men, but sometimes they would have the additional two men to the squad and they would make up a group of men of 100. Again, from where the centurion got his name. The Roman cohort or battalion was composed of six of these centuria. They would have at least... 480 men to the, to the cohort, and sometimes they would have 600 men to the cohort. A legion, or a battalion of Roman soldiers, had 10 cohorts. They had 120 additional cavalry soldiers. Therefore, a legion could have as many as 7,320 men. Now, at any given time in the history of the Roman military, the army, they had anywhere from at least 25 of these legions to more than 50. So when we think about the words of Christ as He stood uh, being arrested in the garden and he, and he telling 
Peter to put up his sword, he said, Do you not know that I could call for twelve legions of angels to come to my assistance? That's twelve times 7,320. Now normally four Roman soldiers accompanied any man who was condemned to execution. And Christ's situation was no different. Notice what John recorded. He said, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts. To every soldier a part, and also His coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. John 19. 23 through 24. After having all that been accomplished, the soldiers are in possession of Christ Himself, and now at that point in history, all they had to do was simply to wait. The centurion who had witnessed Christ's death and subsequent actions on that day had likely never met Christ before. It's very possible and highly likely that he had just been in Jerusalem for a few days. Now, he might have heard about the uh, triumph and entry into Jerusalem, but likely not a whole lot more was he aware of the history of our Lord. But on that day, in front of those three crosses, in front of the cross of Jesus, we know that he witnessed something that would impact his life, no doubt, for the rest of his life. When we think about the cross, though, or at least when I think about it, normally I think about it from a prophetic point of view. I think about the Lamb of God who died for our sins. Sometimes we think about Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm. Often we think about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant who died for us and the the prophecy of all these things that unfolded. But this centurion, this pagan man who worshipped many gods, he didn't know anything about those prophecies. He wasn't aware of that. But he still saw some things this day that put him on a path to go from pagan worshiper to a believer in Jesus at least for a moment. This morning I want us to talk for a few moments just about exactly what this centurion did see. He saw some things, and I think we can learn a great deal from those things. The first thing I want us to talk about this morning that that he saw, which would have been dominating the scene, was this man saw hate. He saw a hate-filled area around the cross. The chief priests and the Jewish rulers were filled with envy. They despised Jesus. Matthew recorded for us, He said, now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner. This is prior to Barabbas being released, Matthew read for us, whom they would, and and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. For he knew that for the envy they had delivered Him. Matthew 27, 15-18. They hated our Lord. They were extremely envious. They were envious of the popularity that Jesus enjoyed among the people. 
We know they loved the praise of men. John remembered this. He said, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. John twelve forty two through 43 They were envious of that praise, that acknowledgement that Jesus was something phenomenal and great. They wanted that. They wanted to steal that from our Lord. The more praise that Jesus received, the less they would receive. And they were envious of that. They couldn't stand it. We need to keep in mind, there is a difference between jealousy and envy. All jealousy is a sin, except for the jealousy that God has. He is a jealous God. When we have jealousy, or when we have envy, there are both sins. Jealousy means this. To be intolerant of rivalry, disposed to suspect rivalry, hostile toward a rival, or one believed to enjoy an advantage. Envy, on the other hand, means a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. The Jewish leaders were not only jealous of Christ, because they felt he had an advantage among the people, they were also envious of that praise because they wanted it to his detriment. They wanted what Jesus had, and they wanted to hurt him to get it. They weren't just jealous, they were envious. They wanted to harm our Lord. Jewish leaders had this sentiment of envy. But they weren't the only ones that had that sentiment of envy. That feeling echoed among the crowd. The centurion saw those who passed by, railed on him, wagging their heads and saying this, Oh, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it back in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said, among themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with Him reviled Him. Mark fifteen twenty nine through 32 Even those hanging beside Him, enduring a very similar death, joined in with the crowd. Oh, come down, and if you'll come down, I'll believe you. Now notice what they said. He saved other people. But he can't save himself. How did they know he saved other people? They witnessed it. They had seen it. And they echoed this envy dishonestly. They understood. They wanted Christ to show them a sign or a miracle so they could believe. I don't think that's what they were wanting. Matthew remembered this. And Jesus went about all Galilee, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness, all manner of disease, torments, and those who were possessed with devils. And he goes on to talk about the multitudes following him from Galilee to Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and beyond Jordan. They knew what this man could do. They knew it healed people. But he couldn't heal himself. 
He could have. They knew what he had been doing. They simply did not want to obey his commandments and change their lives to fit his life. Why wouldn't Jesus do that? Would that not have been the opportune time to simply come down from the cross and all who would have seen that would have believed? That's not how it works, is it? We go back to John chapter 11, and it is amazing to me to read about the resurrection of Lazarus after having been in the grave for four days. And then the reaction to that from the Jewish leaders were, well, we can't have this. We've got to go back and kill Lazarus for a second time and then kill the man who brought him out of the grave. Miracles do not produce faith. The Word of God produces faith. Jesus never performed a miracle simply to fulfill curiosity. He wasn't going to do that. Do you recall before condemning Jesus to death, Pilate wanting to extract himself from the situation, send him over to King Herod? He wanted to put that on King Herod, let Herod make the decision to murder the Lord. And Luke recorded this, he said, And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season. He had really been looking forward to coming into contact with this man, Jesus, who called himself the Christ, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Luke 23, 8. He could not wait to get this man before him and watch what he could do. Once there, though, Luke records that Herod was asking him questions, trying to prompt him to do something he didn't answer. Why didn't he answer? Because Herod wasn't looking for the truth. Herod was looking for a magic show. He wanted his curiosity filled. He wanted to see what everybody had been talking about. Jesus performed miracles for a very specific reason to show that He was the Son of God and then His message could be received. And it is in that message that we have eternal life. As the centurion stood before the cross, he saw the hate in the people. That's not all he saw. He saw the hurt in those who had gathered round. Not only had the Jews, through their envy, caused the Son of God to go to the cross. They would congregated around to see His death. The centurion saw the hurt in Christ's family. His mother stood at the foot of the cross. She looked up at Him just as the centurion did. They were both there. Now we don't know the exact extent to what Mary's understanding and knowledge of Jesus' birth and mission on earth was. Sometimes it seems as if she was well aware of of what he had come to do and to fulfill. At other times, she seems completely astounded as we read the text of the things that he said and that he did. But I think one thing is certain. She did not realize initially where this would lead her when she accepted the role of bringing the man who would save the world into the world. Notice what some of the things that happened to her. She birthed the very Son of God. 
She had to flee for, for his life and for the life of her and her husband into Egypt to get away from Herod the king. He wanted to kill him. She stood at the foot of this cross after having watched this young man grow into adulthood to the age of about 33. She stood at the foot of his cross looking up at him, watching him die in agony and pain. She witnessed his body being taken down from the cross and, and placed into a borrowed tomb. She watched as they rolled that stone to seal the entrance of that tomb, as it were, sealing the death and the burial and the ending of what she loved so great. Would that not make most of us lose all hope? I think I would have had a problem with that. And this centurion, see, he stood there, he saw all these emotions running upon the faces of these family members who loved Jesus so much. What kind of an impact would that have on someone witnessing something like that? For for one thing, for sure, I believe in my heart that she could have done that she did not do, which would have certainly impacted the centurion. I believe Mary could have saved Jesus from the cross. Do you remember when the Jewish leaders insinuated that he was illegitimate, that he was the result of fornication. John recalled this. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Didn't Abraham do that? Ye do the deeds of your father. Who was their father? Abraham wasn't their father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So they're accusing Christ of being the result of fornication, being an illegitimate child. Now if that were the case, that Jesus was the result of fornication, Mary could have identified the father She could have claimed Jesus to be insane and He would have been saved from the cross. But at least she understood in some way what His mission on earth was. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and she would not denounce His divine sonship. She was not going to do that. But she knew the truth and so she endured the cross right along with those who loved Jesus. The centurion saw the hurt in Christ's family, but he also saw it in the friends who had gathered around also. John recorded that apart from his mother, others were standing at the cross. We, we read about Mary, the wife of Cleophas. We read about her sister. We read about Mary Magdalene and the disciple whom he loved, John 19. Those people who loved Christ were surrounding the foot of that cross, grieving for Him. They dearly loved Him and and they were present at many of those special things that happened in the life of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus looked into the grieving face of John, the disciple who He loved, and He said, Behold thy mother. John 19.21, He was concerned with His mother. He was in in the throes of death and He was thinking of someone else. He wanted His mother to be cared for in His absence. And he wanted the man whom he loved as a brother to care for her. He looked at John and said, Behold your mother. 
he had a great love and sympathy when people were hurt, didn't he? Do you remember when he spoke those words, John eleven thirty five, or when it was said of him, Jesus wept? Those are two short words, but they tell us so much about his character. Why was he weeping? Because he was hurt. He wasn't hurt that Lazarus was dead. He was coming out of the grave. He looked around and he saw Mary and Martha and all those other people distraught, crying, heartbroken because they had lost one they loved so much. And it broke his heart to see that. And as he's hanging on the cross, he's looking down, he's dying, he's giving himself for all of us, and he's worried about his mother. He's worried about his friends. He's worried about everyone except for himself. I can recall visiting with a very close friend of mine, a uh, mentored me for many years, Brother Curtis Cates from Memphis, Tennessee, and I would go visit him, and I remember just a week or so before he passed on into his reward, I stopped by and I, I grabbed him by the hand. I said, Brother Cates, how are you doing? And he looked up, and the first words out of his mouth is, How's your family? How's your family? So he was always concerned with someone else. I called one time, needed some advice, and he wasn't feeling well, and, and he was napping, and, and Sister Kate said, well, uh, he's asleep. I said, well, don't bother him. Just whenever he has opportunity, tell him that I called. Well, the phone must have awakened him, and about ten minutes later, I heard his voice on the other end of the, fi- uh, uh, the, other end of the phone. Always concerned with someone else. That was Jesus giving Himself but being concerned. But that's not all the centurion saw. He did see the hurt in Jesus' family. He saw the hurt in His friends. But He also saw the hurt in Jesus' face. He looked upon that man. He could see that He was in agony. He was suffering. Can you imagine? Christ made seven brief statements while upon the cross. Luke twenty two thirty four he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Concern for other people. To one of the thieves he said, Verily I say unto thee, to today thou shalt be with me in paradise, Luke twenty three, forty three, concerned for someone else. To his mother he said, Woman, behold thy son, and to John he said, Behold thy mother, John nineteen, twenty six through twenty seven, being concerned for someone else. In agony, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think for a second that God turned his back on Christ. He's quoting from Psalms. I think this is his final sermon on the cross. He's wanting those people to understand this is the fulfillment of what David said, being concerned with someone else. Our Lord said, I thirst, knowing what he had accomplished, what he was sent to do. First John or John nineteen twenty eight. After receiving the vinegar, he said, It is finished, John nineteen thirty. And one last time he pressed against the nails. He lifted himself up so he could take a breath, because that's what happened to you when you were nailed to the cross. You died of asphyxiation. You couldn't lift yourself up to be able to fill your lungs enough to take a breath. And so the final thing that he did while laying on that or hanging on that cross, he lifted himself up, pushing against those nails that were in, in his body, and he talked to the Father. 
And he told him, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke twenty three forty six. And after that statement, his spirit departed his physical body and he died. Hanging on a cross between two thieves. And I think that the centurion stationed at the foot of that cross would have witnessed every word that came out of the mouth of our Savior. He would have witnessed every agonizing movement that he tried to make. And he would have realized his hurt. All of this impacting him all along had to have been. And because of the hate and the hurt, he ultimately witnessed something that is the greatest thing that any of us can ever witness. He saw him exactly for who he was. The events that took place moved the centurion. It made an impression upon him, and he confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He had heard all the cruel taunts because of the statement, the claim that Jesus made, I'm the Son of God. He must have heard what happened in the presence of Pilate and the Sanhedrin as they condemned this man for making the true statement of who he really was, the Son of God. And then that centurion made the great confession. He said, surely, truly this was the Son of God. What brought him to that conclusion? What convinced this man to look upon that cross and say, this truly is the Son of God? There weren't any miracles happening while he was hanging there, was there? No, but the wrath of heaven was soon to be revealed. The darkness, the earthquakes, the cry of Jesus to His Father must have convinced Him that He had not witnessed just an ordinary crucifixion. The events must have terrified Him, must have terrified the soldiers standing around Him and all those people who were there that maybe wasn't fully aware of what was going on. Understanding that and realizing what He had just seen and and looking at the evidences of what had taken place, I can't help but believe he must have felt like Paul when Paul met the Lord on the way to Damascus after having helped to murder Stephen. The Lord said, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I'm Christ, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. How was he persecuting Christ? He was killing his people. And he stood there. And he acknowledged that he agreed with Stephen being put to death. I can't help but believe this centurion must have felt that same way. But let's ask the question. Upon whom was the biggest impact of the cross made? I don't know that we'll ever know that answer. I don't know that we can ever say, well, it impacted the centurion more than it did anyone else. I don't know that that's the case. But I do know that his life was changed for at least a moment. He commanded the soldiers who were dispatched to Calvary to to bring down the Christ. He was witnessing many of the powerful things. He saw what had happened. And he went away with the conviction that Jesus was the Christ. For at least a while he acknowledged that. I think it's ironic that it was a Roman soldier 
to be the first one to say that, to understand that Jesus was not a mere man. The man who would later give his life for his convictions, give his life for all the people who are in this room today or who have ever lived or ever will live. He understood now he was something special. There was never a man like Jesus before or after. You remember when the Apostle John recorded for us one time when they wanted to arrest Jesus and the and the soldiers went to get him and they came back and the ruler said, well, why haven't you brought him? They said, never a man spake like that man. But it was a centurion, a heathen soldier, who recognized that. Someone who believed in a multitude of gods recognized God. He saw Jesus for what He was. During the final week of His life, Jesus told His disciples, He said, "And I, If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. This He said, signifying what death He should die. Jesus knew the drawing power of the cross. He knew it can bring people together. It can unite us. And the cross had caused this centurion to understand the deity of Jesus in the majesty of the greatest man who ever lived. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly is the good news, Romans 1.16. As we examine the scenes of the cross, I want us to keep in mind when we read these passages, let's think a little bit about this centurion, the things that he saw. He saw the hate, he saw the hurt, he saw Him for who He truly was. May we all be drawn to the cross. and May we all allow the cross to bring us to repentance. Repentance if we've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. The cross can do that for us. Or maybe those who have obeyed the gospel yet for some reason have become unfaithful. See, God has an answer for that as well. Repentance, confession, prayer, and He'll welcome us back into the fold. Let the cross do that for us today as we stand and as we sing.